This is Brian Kaplovitz, and you're listening to the Speaker Match Radio Series, Success Strategies for Speakers from the Pros. This is a live show where we interview top experts in the speaking industry and business to provide emerging speakers with marketing strategies and other business building advice. If you're listening live, you can participate in this call online right now by going to speakermatch.com slash radio. Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is Brian Kaplovitz, your host, and welcome to this episode of Speaker Match Radio. Uh, Today, we're going to be speaking with Michael Haig, and Michael is a story consultant with a phenomenal background. He's worked with every major studio and network. He consults with screenwriters, novelists, filmmakers, attorneys, and public speakers throughout the world. He has coached writers, producers, stars, and directors on projects for Tom Cruise, Reese Witherspoon, Julia Roberts, Morgan Freeman, and Will Smith, and that's just to name a few. We first had Michael on our program a few years ago where three or four of our members had their stories critiqued on air, and it was so well-received Um It was so well received that uh, we've really been itching to get Michael back on for another round. Um, I'm being told that my microphone is not working, and uh, it seems like I'm coming through. Michael, do you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you fine. (laughs) You and I can have a good conversation anyway. All right. Paul is messaging me that he can't hear me, so... uh, Hopefully everybody else can hear me okay. Anyway, um, we'll, we'll check on that in just a second. But uh, we plan to spend about 90 minutes together, which, uh, which should give us enough time to share Michael's six simple steps to a great story and critique a, uh, a handful of the story submissions that we've received. And if you're unable to stay for the full interview, a replay will be available to members at speakermatch.com slash radio. And it's also available to non-members for a limited time at the same page. Again, that's speakermatch.com slash radio. If you're listening live and participating in this call, you can also submit questions at that URL as well as uh, the uh, using the online chat features on that page. Well, welcome, Michael. I'm ready to get started and uh, and kind of get into this today. Uh, like I said, I, I want to just make sure that people can hear me, so uh, I'm going to just try and open up the line for a second and just ask everybody if they can hear me okay. Here you fine. All right, I've got the line open. Do you guys hear fine. me? Yeah. Yes, yes. Right. hear you. Loud, loud and clear. Aloha. All right, all right. We're going back into lecture mode. All right. It may have I just we been could all, Paul. We could all sing a song together. We had everybody there to get things started. That would be fun. But let's skip that. <laughs> I will, we'll skip Happy that birthday to you. <laughs> Wait a second. Now I got everybody on here. All guests can talk. Okay. Um, all right. We're back on. We're back on lecture mode. I got it. I got it set up right. All right, Michael. Um, 
So I, I gave everybody a little bit of your background, but you have a really interesting, very uh, unique perspective on things because you uh, you work with Hollywood and you see some uh, some connections between what goes on in that world and what goes on in the speaking world. So besides Academy Award speeches, what do movies have to do with public speaking? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I would answer it this way. If you're giving a speech, uh, in almost any circumstance, you're trying to move people to action. You're trying to get them to make a decision and act on it. Now, let's say you're a speaker who is also a consultant and you're hoping that the people in the audience would hire you as a consultant. Or let's say you're a speaker who wants to make your living as a speaker or who's doing that and you're hoping the people in the audience would say, come to my corporation and speak to us or come to my meeting and speak to us. Or maybe you're inspiring your audience with a particular way of looking at the, at the world or a way to change their own lives or some way to transform themselves. You're trying to get them to take certain action to do that. So they have to make a decision that they're on board with what you're suggesting or what you're asking them to do. And when it comes to those kinds of decisions, decisions to make change, decisions to spend money and so on, ultimately those decisions are emotional. Uh, you can have all the data and all the arguments and all the explanations in the world, but if you don't get your audience to believe that they will feel differently if they do what you want to do, if you don't capture them emotionally, you're never going to be able to effectively get them to think or to change or to take action or to create a movement or whatever it is you want them to do. So, your primary goal as a speaker must be to elicit an emotional response from your audience. And if there's one entity that knows better than any other in the world how to elicit emotion, it's Hollywood. They are in the business of creating emotional experiences for the mass audience. Uh, uh, the, the sort of stats came in and at movie theaters just in America and Canada this last year, 2016, Hollywood generated uh, $11 billion worth of tickets. And so they obviously are doing something right when it comes to drawing people into a theater and create, creating an emotional experience. Now, I, as you alluded to, I've been working in Hollywood as a consultant now for over 30 years. And along the way, I've acquired different principles or developed my own approaches on how you accomplish that goal. How do you create that emotional experience? So what the connection to me is for speakers, if you can take the principles that have worked so well for Hollywood as storytellers and incorporate them into stories that you include in your speeches, you are gonna be a much more powerful speaker and much more effective at getting your audience to take the action you want them to take. So for you, this emotional experience is, you, you've said something like this before, that it's really all about the stories, 
right? Yeah. Well, I think stories are your most powerful tool for creating an emotional experience. There are other ways within a speech to create emotion. Uh, if you are a stirring speaker, if you move people uh, and inspire them just by your message and so on, that can also be emotional. But first, you've got to get them emotionally involved in what you're saying and also emotionally connected to you as a speaker. So it's not that stories are the only way to do that, but to me, stories are the most powerful way to do that. When you can include or begin your speech with a powerful story or stretch a story intermittently throughout the speech, now you're going to grab your audience in a much de at a much deeper level and a much stronger way than you will if you just get up and say, here's how you can make more money. These are the statistics on the stock market last year, or this is this are the facts and figures I have to deliver. I think a story is going to make that just much easier to accomplish. So it is possible to have an emotional response um, that is created by a speech that does not have a story in it? Yeah, I, I certainly <laughs> – we're going to sort of get direction here away from what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, I mean, um, okay, take the Gettysburg Address. Okay, that seems an emotional speech, but I don't remember that there's a particular story in it. Now, he was drawing on a series of events that occurred that were very emotionally involving for the audience. But even when we hear it today, the magic he weaves with those words and the things he is, is urging people to do, that's emotional. I think overall, a good speech is going to keep us emotionally involved with what the character, with what the speaker is saying, rather. I just think that as a speaker, when you can weave stories into that speech, you're exponentially going to, going to increase your ability to connect with your audience in that way. Got it. I, I like that example. That, uh, that makes it a little more clear for me. So uh, for a lot of speakers, most speakers, they're going to come up with stories to tell that are going to help them to elicit that emotional response and make a connection with the audience. How do you help a client decide what stories to tell? Well, the first question I would ask in, in deciding on the story is what's the speech about? What, what is the goal of the speech? What is the action you want your audience to take at the end? What is the message you're trying to deliver? What is it you're trying to persuade them to think or do or say or, or believe with your speech? When you can answer that question, which is absolutely critical as a speaker, then we have to say, okay, what stories can you tell that are going to reinforce that idea, reinforce uh, your, the persuasive message you're trying to get across. And so you would look to either your own experience or you would look to the experiences of others where you or the, whoever is the hero of your story has transformed their life, have transformed their lives by doing whatever it is you want the audience for your speech to do. So let's go back to the example I had. Let's say you want to be hired as a consultant in whatever arena it is. Okay, so your idea as a consultant is you want to help people make more money. 
okay? So you have a particular approach to doing that, and you're trying to convince the audience that if you work with me, I'm going to bring to bear a, a, a set of talents or skills that, that will do a very effective job of making you more money. And to illustrate that, I'm going to tell you how I use these steps to increase my income or increase my net worth, or I'm going to tell you a story about someone I worked with and how using the principles I'm going to give you, using the tools that I have and can bring to the party, they were able to go from poverty to wealth or whatever the story is particularly about. So it depends on what the message is. Once you know the message, now you need to pick stories that are going to illustrate how that message was used by someone, you or someone else, to transform their life. Now, it doesn't have to be about making money. You might be in trying to inspire people to stand up for who they are, to define themselves, to not worry about what other people think of them, to, um, to use particular techniques as managers of businesses. Doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you want to get your audience to do, tell us stories about someone who did something similar by using those principles or taking those steps and show how that that using those got them to a new place that matches the place that your audience would like to be wealthier a better manager uh, happier uh, better more free time whatever again whatever the point of your speech is i often hear from people that they have a good message but their life is boring and that no one would want to hear them tell a story about themselves. No, I hear How do you help too. people like that? I, I hear that <laughs> often myself. I think it's something we all, well, maybe not all of us, there are a few sort of obvious examples of people, I guess, who don't mind talking about themselves. But a lot of us, I think, believe that we we see, you know, we see a highly paid speech by, uh, you know, Bill Clinton or, or you know, a famous astronaut, a famous author, even a famous movie star or whatever. And you say, well, who's going to want to see me? I haven't had a life like Bill Clinton has had or Barack Obama or whoever it might be. But I would suggest that you think about movies. Every All roads lead to Hollywood for me in terms of story examples. If you think about the movies that make money at the box office, if you want to use that measure, or movies that are highly lauded, or just think about the movies you've seen that are your favorite movies. Most of those stories are not about extraordinary people. They're about ordinary people who were thrust into extraordinary situations. So if you take, let's take the likely Oscar nominees, like La La Land. Now, I don't know how many people have seen that, but it's about Two ordinary people, a struggling actress and a struggling jazz musician who meet and then with each other's help start to both fall in love and start to pursue their dreams. Okay, it isn't about world leaders. It isn't about magnets of industry. It isn't about very famous people. Um, you the same thing with anything from goodwill hunting to Star Wars. If you think about Star Wars, which is now making billions more <laughs> with each new incarnation, but if you go back to the original, Luke Skywalker was not an extraordinary person. He was an everyday guy living on some planet in a galaxy far, far away, you know, <laughs> an orphan, waiting for something to happen to him. 
And then something did. Something dropped into his life that led him on a path that he uh, became someone extraordinary, where he found courage, where he was able to transform into someone else. But the reason we want to hear stories, the reason we connect with stories is not because they're about extraordinary people. It's because they are about characters we can identify with, that we can feel an emotional connection to, whose lives are in some way similar to ours, probably not geographically or even in the same era or the same galaxy, you might say, but they're similar in that they share the same dreams. They're suffering from the same uh, wounds and fears. They are under feeling the same kind of danger of loss, whatever it might be. If you create that kind of hero for your story, or if you are telling a story about that kind of person, including a story about yourself, that's what's going to connect with your audience. That's what's going to pull your audience in. And it's actually going to be a better story. Because if you say, once upon a time, the Queen of England was, and then already it's like, okay, but what about, what has my life got to do with Queen Elizabeth? Okay. But, if you're telling a story about someone who is second in line to the throne, who has no desire to be a king, who is suffering from a horrific speech impediment because of a childhood experience of abuse, and now is thrust into the situation of having to make a speech without stuttering and uh, uh, take on, you know, and, and take, take on the crown and become the king of England. Now you have a very compelling story because that ordinary person was thrust into some extraordinary situation. That's what you want to mimic with your story. You have some submissions from people and, uh, I think that there may be, uh, an appropriate one to talk about here from, uh, Carrie Phillips? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction that I have this process called the six steps uh, or a six-step process of storytelling. It's uh, I, I refer to them as six-step success stories because the stories you're telling us as a speaker are primarily going to be about people who achieve some kind of success, personal, professional, financial, whatever. And it comes from my experience working with screenwriters and studios and producers and so on in Hollywood, where a big issue in developing screenplays and getting them ready to go on the screen is understanding story structure. And so I had developed my own approach to how you structure movie scripts or how you structure novels for fiction writers in a way that's going to maximize that emotional experience. So... I use that when I'm coaching speakers and corporate leaders as well, but I found that that could be a little bit complex and have elements that weren't necessarily critical to giving a good shorter story in a speech or whatever. And I really wanted to simplify it. So what I did is I pared it down into what I call these six steps. It's basically six the six steps in the sequence you want to take the main character of your story through as you tell the story. So, yeah, what would be fun is let's listen to Carrie's story, and then I will not only comment on the particular story and make suggestions about it, but I will use it to illustrate what these particular six steps are. Okay. Yeah, I think Carrie's was uh, more along the lines of the uh, life is boring uh, topic, but 
Well, uh, let's let's play this and uh, and I'll let you talk about it. And Kerry is on the line if we want to bring him in. My name is Kerry Phillips in Kansas City, Missouri. This is a story I tell to parent groups and a revised version I use in a presentation on developing leaders. I call it the kite. When I was a boy of about nine, I went out to fly a kite on the banks of the Mississippi River. I was living in little New Madrid, Missouri, a town known for an earthquake two centuries ago that reversed the flow of this mighty river. The Tennessee-Kentucky border sat just across the river from me. I flew my kite in the same wind responsible for that violent current, and they did not disappoint. I watched and maneuvered as the air pulled it higher and further over the river. With every tug I felt in my hand, I released more string, and what I released, it took. Every extra inch I gave was an inch it grew until I had nothing left to offer. The kite pulled at all the string I had, and my hands firmly clasped around the wooden spool, tried to control it without pulling it out of the sky completely. I was out of height to offer, but the kite wasn't out of height to gain. I could continue to let it fly only while I was holding it, and eventually draw it out of the sky back to where it started, or I could let go and watch it pursue new height without me and ultimately end up somewhere else, somewhere I could not get to it. Being nine, I was still more in awe of the elements than afraid of them, so the next time I felt a pull, I let the kite go. I watched it take all the air that my hold on the string had kept from it. Without my guiding hand, it tumbled and fluttered, sputtered and dipped, but it stayed in the sky, stayed above the water. I watched transfixed as the kite that used to be mine easily cleared the mighty Mississippi, and I stayed on the Missouri banks until I'd seen it glide slowly down to rest on the grounds of a different state, though which state I couldn't quite tell. Fifty years later, I drove my 18-year-old daughter to the airport. She was headed to a college 1,047 miles away. I had taught her, among other things, all the states and their capitals, the order of the U.S. presidents, four chords on a guitar, how to ride a bike, but I was out of string. Two years later, I would make the same drive with her sister and stand firmly on the Missouri ground while my younger daughter flew to another state to look for apartments, earn internships, run marathons, and mentor other students. I could not have done those things for her. I could not have even guided her suddenly through them. I could only release her and free her to pursue them. It is a terrifying thing to let something that once belonged to you belong to itself instead, to test the integrity of what you've made against the winds and above a violent, dominating current. But as far as you can lead someone is not as far as they can go. It is the tragedy and triumph of creating something capable. But kites were made to fly, not merely to be flown. Okay. So, um, first of all, Carrie, great job. I enjoy that. I enjoyed that speech or that story immensely. What you've actually done here is kind of combine two stories. There's the story of you as a nine-year-old boy flying the kite, and there's the story of you as the 59-year-old man dropping your daughter off at college. So let's take the first one. Let's just isolate the kite story, and then I'm going to bring in the other hey, one. Michael, show. Michael, sorry, I have uh, Carrie on the line with us. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was I was going to call on you, Carrie, after I, I sort of dove in here. So, 
Uh, no, I can say to you personally, very, very involving story. I found myself very emotionally involved at both at both elements of that story. So good job. Thank you. And you said, so this is, among other things, this is, you give this speech or, or you use this story in a speech to parent groups. So I'm, I'm assuming the action you want them to take is essentially to be able to let go of their sort of control or their need to, let, to, to cling to their children and allow their children to move on and define themselves or build their own lives with their guidance, but not by, by not being held back by the emotional needs of their parents. Is that sort of it? That's uh, that's what it is, Mike. Uh, my, my thinking was that the world's much smaller for them than it was for me. Uh, they it's just just broader, and that they could go so much farther than I can actually lead them, and I've got to let that happen. Okay. So again, uh, for everyone, what Carrie started with is the idea: I want to get, I want my audience to take this action. To, to just, we'll just use the phrase, I want my audience to find the courage to let their children go. So they're not holding them back and clinging to them out of a desire to protect them or love them or, or whatever, but they're letting them fly free, so to speak, so they can, they can move on and do bigger things with their own lives. So that's the action. So now Carrie has to think, okay, what is a story that would illustrate this? And so he came up with both the kite story and remembering the story about what happened when uh, he took his daughter to college. Okay, so it, the first thing that Carrie had to do and the first thing all of you must do in developing a story is figure out who is the hero of that story going to be. And in this case, uh, for both parts of the story, he picked himself, which is Again, and he picked himself very skillfully, even though there was nothing about either story that said that that Carrie was anything extraordinary. I'm sure you are, Carrie. No insult intended. <laughs> but but you know, Carrie is not saying you know I've been the head of five major corporations. We don't even really know who Carrie is in the context of the bigger world. All we know is he's an ordinary nine-year-old flying a kite and an ordinary father who's having an experience that millions of fathers have had and that is reaching that point when they when they when their child has become a grown up and they have to let them go so so it's because of that that i think immediately we're drawn into the story because we can empathize with that even if we haven't had that experience or don't have children or maybe even haven't flown a kite before so he chose the hero of the story he might have illustrated this with a story about someone else and we can talk about that later um uh, when we go, when I go further with Brian, but back to this story. So now he's got this story about the kite. So in the story about the kite, there or in any well-told story, you're going to take your hero through six steps. The first step is what I call the setup. That's where you introduce your hero. And you want to be sure to do this. Don't start your story in the middle of the action. You don't want to make your audience jump on a train that's already left the station. We want to see a before picture of this character. We want to see where this character was before the action begins. So uh, to my recollection in hearing the story, um, he didn't say, I was flying a kite. 
he talked about, he established the setting. He said he lived in this area, the, the river runs backwards because of the strange thing that happened. It looks across uh, this river, it seemed quite dramatic. It was, a, I picture a fairly wide rushing river, created a lot of wind. He's drawing us into his world by defining the setting with some details first. Then he introduces us to the hero, a nine-year-old boy. Now, when you introduce your hero into the setting you've created, one of the main things you must do, besides just illustrate the everyday life, is you must create empathy with that character. Now, when you're telling a story about a child, there's almost immediate empathy. When it's a grown-up, let's just switch to the driving to uh, college with his daughter, the empathy can be created primarily by either sympathy, jeopardy, or likability. Someone who is, we feel sorry for, someone we worry about, or someone we care about because they're very kind-hearted and generous. So knowing that he was driving his daughter to college and having to sort of, you know, cut the apron strings, if that's still an expression people use, you know, break the ties, we start feeling sorry for him a bit, or we start worrying about him because he's facing a certain kind of loss. That increases the empathy. Even when he was introducing himself as a child, he said, at one point, he said, I was in awe of the elements. And a sidebar suggestion, I'll give you more in a while, Carrie is, I would probably have put that sooner. I would have probably described you standing at the banks of this river, being in awe of it, and a little bit frightened by, or, or, or a little bit uh, overwhelmed by the rushing water and the blowing wind and trying to control the kite. So there's a little bit more of a sense of sympathy for the character or jeopardy for the character before the action actually begins. Okay, so that's the setup. Now I should I should stop here and say, Brian, interrupt me at any point if you have questions about any of these steps, because I tend to go into lecture mode and go on and on. Yeah. Are you there, Brian? Sorry about that, Michael. Yes, uh, yeah, no problem. You're uh, you're you're great. Uh, okay. so, so I will absolutely well, interrupt you if I need to. Yeah, but uh, I, I do want to let people know that if they have any questions, if you're on the line listening and you would like to participate in the call, you can always dial star two on your telephone keypad, or click the uh, the button in your uh, on your web page if you're connected through the web interface. Good. Okay, I'm not going to stop myself and ask that again, but just know, please interrupt uh, Brian uh, or or Carrie if you want to ask me a question as I'm midstream in these six steps. Okay, once you have set up your character, once you've completed step one, the next thing, step number two is what I call the crisis. Something must happen to your hero, to the main character of your story, and I should clarify, when I use the term hero, all I mean is the protagonist. I don't mean someone who's heroic. Uh, I often say that a hero of a story is someone who has the potential to become heroic, as will happen with both of the, with, with, with I will refer to Carrie as the Carrie character, in, the character hero of both these stories. But right now, it's just an ordinary nine-year-old. So this, this hero, nine-year-old Carrie, um, has a crisis, or, or well, all it means is it's something that's never happened before. And 
in response to that, the character is going to have to figure out what am I going to do about what just happened? How do I interpret this? What are my choices of action? What, what am I going to, what, what do I have to, uh, what action do I have to take? And they are going to formulate a specific goal, um, a visible goal that has a clearly defined endpoint. So even though it doesn't sound like a crisis, all a crisis really is is an opportunity. It could be something bad. It could be something good. But the opportunity for uh, Carrie in the kite story is he begins flying the kite. So he's got to figure out, okay, how do I fly this kite? And his goal is to get the kite aloft so, it can, so he can be successful at flying the kite. So it's as high in the air as he can go. That's the end point. That's his visible goal. That's the finish line he wants to cross before the story is over or by the time the story is over. Okay, step three then is what I call pursuit. And that means once the goal is defined for your hero, the hero is going to start taking action. And in your story, you want to detail what is the action that the character takes. Uh, you don't want to just say the character decided I need to make more money. And so then they started working with me and lo and behold, they became a millionaire because it doesn't define what the steps were that the person had to take. You don't have to define all of the steps, but you need to pick at least a couple that give us a sense of this is what the character had to do to accomplish this goal. So what Kerry does in his story is he talks about letting the string go, letting it go further and further and further, struggling against these big wins and so on. So those are the steps he had to take but at the same time, you have to go to step three, step four rather, which is conflict. Now you remember at the beginning I said your primary goal with a story is to elicit emotion. Emotion goes out of conflict. It's the obstacles your character faces that are gonna make your story more emotional. So much so that the bigger the conflict, the greater the emotional experience. So you want to make clear what those obstacles were. If you are telling a story about someone who worked with you, you don't want to just make it sound like it was an easy process, mm -hmm. you know, that may be the temptation. You want to say that the character struggled with finding the time to do this, or they struggled with other people telling them they were making a mistake, or they struggled with their own fears, or their own, uh, uh, their whatever the obstacles were they had to confront, because then you can talk about how they overcame those obstacles with your help, but you want conflict. So the conflict comes in the story in that nine-year-old Carrie wants to get the kite as high as he can, but he runs out of string. Okay, so now what's he going to do? It can't go any further because he's got no more string. It's, uh, you worded it very well. It's as high. You said, uh, do you remember exactly how you said that, Carrie? It, it was, it had, it, I couldn't let, it go anymore. How did you phrase that? The idea that the kite was as high as you could let it go, but it had further to go without you. you I was out of height. What I said was I was out of height to offer, but the kite wasn't out of height to gain. 
Yes. Okay, that's not only a great turn of phrase, it's a very clear conflict. What's he going to do? He wants this kite to go as high as possible. That was his goal, but now he's out of string. So what's he going to do? If he lets it go, no more kite. If he doesn't let it go, it doesn't accomplish his goal. Okay, so he is struggling, and in this case, it's kind of a, it's an emotional struggle. It's the need for the courage to let go of the kite and put higher priority on letting the kite go free and go as high as it can and as far as it can to keeping the kite. So then we come to step five, which is the climax. The climax is that moment when your hero crosses that finish line, either succeeds or fails at accomplishing the goal. The climax for Carrie is after he lets, cuts the string or lets go of the string, I forget what you did exactly there, he sees the kite go further and further into the sky, which was what he wanted. He succeeds at achieving that goal. And the, the sixth step, and an absolutely critical one, because a story should never end with the climax. It's not just about succeeding at achieving the goal, but the sixth step is what I call the aftermath. You want to paint a picture of the new life the character is able to live having completed this journey, having crossed that finish line, or even having to fail to cross it because there may be a lesson in that as well. But in this case, we want to hear the new life that the character is living. Now, this is where Carrie does something clever. He ends the kite story sort of with the climax. I mean, he does, we do have a sense of him getting to watch it go to a new state. He's not sure which. So he does feel that satisfaction. But what the real aftermath is, he learned a lesson. And that is sometimes you got to cut the string on the kite. Now he jumps ahead to tell his second story, which is the story of him driving his daughter to college. And we could break it down into the six steps. The setup is in the car. The, the opportunity is he's got to, is, it probably preceded the story, but the opportunity is when we learn that this time, unlike any other time, he's got to let his daughter go, drop her off and not take her home with him and drop her off at college. So the action is him getting her there, but the conflict is obviously struggling with that. I'm going to have to let her go. The climax is when he lets her go. And that's when the lesson he learned in the first story comes into play in the second story. So the real aftermath is 50 years later, he was able to take an act of courage that replicated what he had done at nine years old. And the aftermath of that is his daughter was now able to go live a bigger, better, broader life than she was at the beginning. So hopefully that wasn't confusing. I, I like this story too, because even though I wasn't even intending to talk about it, he, uh, Kerry did something that is a good idea for all of you, and that is sometimes this is the way you want to deliver a story. You tell something in the past that happened to you, and you learn some lesson from that, and now you apply that lesson into a new situation where because of what you learned before, you're able to achieve that. But of course, the aftermath of the dropping his daughter off matches the aftermath that the audience for Carrie's speech wants, because he's taking as an assumption, which is fairly safe. I'm talking to a group of parents who want their children to be happy. But what I want to teach them is sometimes their happiness depends on you no longer protecting them the way you have 
and cutting the string and letting them go. So you want them to have your audience to have, or Carrie wants his audience to have the emotional experience of having a happier, more fulfilled child because they would find the courage to let that child go when the time was right. And that's how Carrie's going to be able to persuade them through these two stories to take the action he wants them to take. So um, really good job, Carrie. I, I really think you did an excellent job of, of uh, whether, you, whether you're aware of it or not, using those six steps and also using the two-story principle to uh, create a lesson and then pay it off with a later story. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the feedback. Yeah, don't go away just yet. So uh, uh, do you have any questions about anything I said or Brian or did anyone chat room in with any questions about what I was saying as I was talking about his stories? There is nobody with their hand. Oh, somebody's got their hand raised right here. Uh, Carl, you're on the line with us. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just uh, wondering what uh, step three was. I kind of missed that uh, that step. Was that the action or the opportunity that, that happens after a crisis? Yes. Uh, well, I, I, a crisis, I said, could also be called an opportunity. What I, the term I use for step three is pursuit, because you're actually telling about your hero taking steps to achieve whatever that specific goal is. Uh, action, pursuit, either one is usable. I just latched onto the term pursuit because I wanted to really convey the need for um, for the hero not to be passive, not just wait for things to happen, but actually taking steps toward the goal they're pursuing. Uh, thank you. Sure. Mike, you mentioned the uh, conflict. It was funny. It wasn't in there, but at nine years old, the conflict was that kite cost me $3. The okay. idea of, of uh, you know, that do I bring it back in and get another, you know, try to get another set of string, but I wasn't sure that I would be able to get it back because it had gotten so far and, and I hadn't accomplished my goal yet. And then when my daughters got ready to go, that like to say, it was a small conflict for a nine-year-old, a much bigger conflict when I got older. Yes. So I, you have to include that in the story now that you've revealed it to us because that's a <laughs> critical element. And if I were to give you some coaching on these two stories, uh, the coaching would be to a great extent on the beginning of both stories. I would probably suggest that instead of saying I was nine years old and describing this, the, the, the environment, I would start right out with I was nine years old when I was standing on the banks of the and name the river and say, I had my brand new $3 kite in my hand, which had taken two weeks allowance or however you want to make that sound important. Right. Now, the thing about this river is that centuries before, because of some da-da-da, it actually flowed backwards. And it also made it a powerful river rushing beside me created great winds, which were great for kite flying, but a bit frightening to a nine-year-old. Now, maybe you weren't right. that frightened, but it adds to the story if you say you were. And then you, and then you start your pursuit of letting the kite out. And, want, or, and then you say, my goal, though, was to get this kite flying as high as it possibly could. And then you, def and then you reveal letting the string out. But with the 
college story, you didn't really have quite the setup, I think, would be, uh, I think your setup could be more powerful if we were in that car with you a little while. If you were driving, sitting next to me was my daughter. She was 18-year-old. She was excited because she was about to start her first day of college. I was feeling something less than excited because for the first time in my life, I would have to drop my daughter off knowing I was going back home without her and and build that up because then we'll create more empathy and more connection with you as that hero and really emphasize the struggle you're having as you let her go. But it's a great mirror, but you can give that a little more a little more time and make it a little stronger story in its own right and still be reflecting back on the kite story. In right, fact, right. That is a good and, idea. Yeah, just one more thing, and then and then we'll move on. One way you might consider telling these two stories is this: when you start your speech, by start by saying, "I was sitting in the car driving to whatever city it was. Next to me was my 18-year-old daughter, and name her. She was excited because she was about to start her first day of school at whatever college it was." I was less so. How was you know, because of such and such? How was I going to be able to do this? How could I allow her to go off alone, not knowing if she was going to be safe, not being able to protect her the way I always had? And as I was fretting about this, I remembered something that happened to me 50 years earlier. I was nine years old. And so you interrupt the car story, you go back and tell the kite story, then you bring us back to the kite story with the principle you had learned, and then we see the climax and the aftermath of that one. Yeah, that is a really good idea because, like I say, I'm kind of saving the punchline, but they might might not know exactly where I'm going. That's, That's actually a really good idea. Thank you. Sure, sure. We got a couple more callers on the line with us, Michael, with questions. Sure. Uh, the first one is Gretchen. Gretchen, go ahead. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for this. This is really interesting. My question, you said to start at the beginning of the story, so sort of a linear progression. And um, I'm an improv comedy performer, and one of the pieces there is starting in the middle of the action. So I just wondered if you could comment on starting, you know, when you're giving – and I know – doing an improv comedy show is different than giving a sort of scripted performance, but, you know, starting in the middle and working through a story first, I mean, starting at the beginning and working through it versus starting in the middle and going back or going forward in time. Okay. So uh, what I would suggest is that, or it's not a suggestion. The way I would respond to that is As you're writing the story, as you're creating the story for your speech and scripting it out, start in chronological order because you want to make sure you're hitting all these six steps. You want to make sure we're empathizing with your hero. We want to make sure that all the pieces are in place. And I think as you lay out the story, if you start with step four, not having figured out what step one is, you're going to be in trouble. But... Once you've laid it out chronologically and you start thinking, okay, now what is the most powerful emotional way for me to begin this story or me to actually present it, then you might decide, you know what would be better is start in the middle. Now, my advice is usually if you're going to start in the middle, 
you want to leave us hanging in a moment of crisis. So if you're just starting in the middle and says, if uh, I, I can't even think of a good example, a good bad example for that, but just to start in the middle for the sake of being in the middle and, and going back because that feels clever isn't good. But if you start at a moment of crisis, if you start at a point where the hero of that story is facing an obstacle and they don't know what they're going to do, that creates immediate conflict. Conflict elicits emotion. Now we're immediately emotionally involved wondering, how are they going to overcome this obstacle? How are they going to get there? How are they going to accomplish this goal? And then you, for, and then you sort of tease your audience and say, well, we'll get back to that, but let me tell you how I got or how this hero got to that point. And now you create the empathy, and now you tell us the setup, and now you tell us the opportunity, all the while your audience is getting emotionally involved with the character and the story in the, in the traditional way, but they're always hanging on in the back of their mind to the idea, but when, it, when are they going to encounter the, the, the dragon? <laughs> when are they going to come up against that villain that you introduced me to at the beginning of the story? So it's a very good technique for certain stories. I just don't recommend starting writing your story that way. Write it chronologically and then figure out the best place to enter the story in your speech. That makes so much sense. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Gretchen. Hi. Thank you for the question. And uh, we have uh, another caller on the line with us with the question. And I also want to let people know that uh, they can see you live and uh, get more of this, a lot more of this at Lady and the Champs coming up. Uh, it's March uh, 3rd and 4th, correct? Uh, yeah. In Vegas? March 3rd and 4th it's in Las Vegas. Vegas. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I've, I've been to two Lady, lady and the Champs or Ladies and the – it's a Lady and the Champs. It's a great, great conference, the, the best possible, I think, for anyone who wants to develop their skill at any level at, as a public speaker. You've got, you've got uh, three world champion speakers. You've got Patricia Fripp, one of, the, one of the best, most renowned speakers and speaking coaches in the world and a number of other of us uh, that are going to talk about speaking from different points of view. So I'm making a presentation there, as are a number of others. But it's a terrific event. It, it's a great event. We highly recommend it, and uh, you can get more information about that at ladyinthechamps.com. Our next caller is Shahrukh. Shahrukh, go ahead with your question. Hi, Michael. It's Shahrukh Darwala from Vancouver. I have two questions. The first one is, what is the importance to the audience of the turning point where the moment where the protagonist goes from, let's call it the before to the after stage or has this aha and revelation and things change for the better? How important is, is it to paint that turning point in a way in which the audience can relate to it as compared to uh, something that is so beyond the pale that they don't connect, they don't feel that they will be in a position to emulate what the protagonist did. Yeah, I, I sense you already know the answer in the way you asked the question. I mean, it's critical because all... A good story is always going to be about some transformation. 
it's going to be about change in the character. And that change is usually grounded in finding some sort of courage. If we go back to Carrie's two stories, he had to find the courage to let go of the kite and he had to find the courage to let go of his daughter. But you want to, you, you can't just say, and then I had an aha moment. There has to be something growing out of the pursuit of the goal that leads to that moment. He was in a dilemma because he had conflicting desires to get the kite high and to hang on to his $3 kite. And finally, he had to make a choice. And he found the courage to make that choice because the goal became more important than his fear of letting go. And the same thing with his daughter. So oftentimes, and, and, and this brings up a, a, a good point, if you're telling a story about yourself, you don't you don't want to start the story with, our, with yourself already being wise, necessarily, if you're the hero. So you want that moment, and oftentimes that moment will be your opportunity to give credit to someone else, the person who taught you that message, your mentor, your coach, uh, the, the person you've modeled your life after, someone you greatly admire. It might even be a story about someone you never met but you read about or heard about from a previous century. So you want to pinpoint that moment. If it isn't a person that gave you that insight or gave you that courage, then you at least want to tell about that moment when you realized you had to make this choice and you made the choice for this reason so that you can convey to your audience, you too can find the courage to do this. In, in, uh, in Carrie's story, what he did is he sort of turned himself at nine years old into the mentor for the 50 nine-year-old man because he remembered it and that's when he realized aha yeah that's the that's the courage i need to find again that's the principle i want to get across so it's very important that you say through that pursuit and conflict stage what it was that empowered your hero to take that final action and cross that finish line how they found that courage so you must be a mind reader because that connects it <laughs> to my next question, which is, to what extent uh, is it important to stick to the truth of the story in a situation where you are the speaker and trying to inspire the audience? Because often what I find is that the hero ends up putting the crown on his or her head because he or she found the magic pill and came through the other side completely transformed. And it often reeks of uh, self-interest and aggrandization. And so is it advisable to plant a guru who then shows the protagonist the way as compared to taking the credit yourself? Yeah, you're asking sort of two questions. So let me answer the second one first. I don't know that it's necessarily a good idea or even required that you create a fictional guru. What I think you do need to do is pick stories about moments when you were facing a real crisis and were afraid of taking action and something gave you the strength to do that. If all you're saying is, but I'm a courageous guy, so then I did the right thing, that is gonna be self-aggrandizing and probably not true. 
it might be that you remembered something from the past. It might be, and that's when I heard my grandmother's voice saying to me, and that's, you know, whatever the message is of your story. But somehow that idea got in your head. Somebody gave you that principle. Somebody gave you that philosophy. Or you just came to the realization that the goal you were pursuing was actually more important to you than the fear you were experiencing. So if you struggle with that choice and finally are able to make it when you weigh those two things, that does not feel like bragging so much. That just feels like, you know, that at that one moment I had this realization and then that has paid off and I think it will from you. But, but uh, if you say, well, most people don't know how to find the courage, but I was able, you know, but I'm a brave guy, so I will, that's bad storytelling. Now, the other question you ask, though, is something different, and that is how true must you be with the story? My belief is the stories you tell in your speech have to be true, but they don't have to be factual. In other words, in terms of the message you're imparting, in terms of the experience you're taking credit for, in terms of your own background, or in terms of the validity of the process or the product you're trying to sell, those have to be genuine or legitimate. You have to have integrity about that. But if you need to alter, it's like I was saying to Carrie, okay, maybe you weren't that afraid at the river, but it makes a better story in the long run if you were because it will reflect on the fear you're going to feel taking your daughter to college. If you need to change it for that reason, that's fine. You're not selling your audience a bill of goods. You're just structuring real life in a better way than real life is usually structured by combining characters, by adding certain elements or adding certain feelings and so on. So again, it's got to be true deep down. You've got to, it's got to be legitimate what you're, what you're promoting, but it doesn't have to be factual. You can take some liberties with uh, a thing that happened over three years could happen over three weeks if you can make it a better story that way. Okay. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank so, you. All right, Michael, you got uh, you got a few more things on your list here. You got some more submissions. What is the uh, best way for for you to proceed? We got well, about we better, another yeah, half hour or so. Yeah, since I'm not a, I, I'm a kind of a long-winded guy. We better listen to another story and see what we can glean from that about using the six steps. So maybe uh, go to uh, one of the other submissions. I think Otto's story was the next one we were going to mention. If you want to pull that one up. Okay, here comes Otto. Hi, my name is Otto Siegel with Genius Coaching in Scottsdale, Arizona. And here is my story I wanted to share with you. For a moment, I want to take you back to Germany in 1991. The Berlin Wall had come down, and I was part of a group of consultants going into East Germany and training East German generals to become ready for positions in West German companies as managers. Nobody ever in history had been doing this before. So I found myself one morning, on a drizzling November morning, in the middle of 18 generals in an old kindergarten building in Schwerin. I walked in, Guten Morgen. No response. Just blank stares. So I tried a little bit more cheerful, Guten Morgen. No response. So I started sweating and become nervous. 
But then I had an idea. I saw them playing volleyball the night before when I arrived. So I invited them to join me, come out and, and uh, shoot a few balls. Very reluctantly, they followed me. And we get a decent game going, so I could at least memorize their names. After lunch, we took a shower, had lunch, and back to the same room again. Silence, silence, silence. Now I started sweating. I became nervous. And my butterflies in my stomach started to, because I did not know what to do next. All my concept was gone, useless. So I took a deep breath and said, here is the deal. I have nothing to teach you. You teach me. And I sat down for the longest 10 minutes of my life. And then eventually one of them, the most courageous one, started to talk. And the second person chimed in. And the third general uh, added his voice. And during the next three hours, I learned more about espionage, communism, East German system, and suppression than in any history lesson ever before. And I learned more about myself. I was not a consultant I was hired for. I was a coach, and my job was to listen. It changed me forever, and my destiny, my passion, has been coaching ever since. Thank you for listening. Okay, is um, is uh, Otto on the call? Otto, if you are on the line with us, I don't see your name showing up in my console, but if you dial star two, I will uh, I'll be able to see you and bring you into the call. Okay, I'll go ahead with or, some comments, and if Otto chimes in, or you, sorry, or you can click on your uh, on the web console. Okay, so so let me dive in, and then Otto can join in if he's if he's there, and if not, we'll t we'll talk about his story behind his back, I guess. Um, <laughs> so if I were coaching Otto, I would start by asking him some questions. It's a principle I believe in too. Questions are critical, but there are things that, about the story that I wanted to know that aren't there. First of all, I don't really understand what his job was. I understand he was a consultant, and I understand the Germans had to be managers, but what what did he want to accomplish in this class? What was it specifically he was trying to teach them to do? Was it leadership skills? Was it just getting acquainted? Were there specific tasks he wanted to give them that they that he couldn't? I, In other words, we don't have a real visible goal here. It's just a very generalized goal of I was supposed to help them be better consultants. The more specific the goal of your hero of your story, the more compelling your story will be because the audience wants to know, what am I rooting for here? It's like, think of it as like a, a athletic competition. Imagine a group of runners and they're all at the, at the starting line or whatever you say in the blocks. They've got their feet in the blocks and the, 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 the gun goes off, you know, ready, set, go. And they start running and there's no finish line. They just keep running, and it's like, well, what are they doing? Well, they're racing. Well, who's going to be the winner? Well, I don't know. He's just racing. That's not going to be compelling. We want to know what that finish line is. So, And more, the more specific it is, the better. So what was he trying to do specifically in this situation? 
Another thing I would suggest is in the setup, instead of giving sort of the background of, of I was there and it was at this year, I would start out by describing the setting. I would describe this classroom. I would describe the people sitting around staring at him, and then you can interject or Otto can interject. I was, it was, then he can say it was 19, and I forget what year it was, um, and I was there because so-and-so and so-and-so, and so he's kind of, it's kind of like starting in the middle, or he's setting it up, and then he's giving the background of what it was he was doing there. And so now the opportunity is he's supposed to start teaching them. And then the new situation is they're not responding. They're not saying the word. He can't get him to do anything. And his goal, he's got to figure out what do I do because his goal was, and that's when he gives us the end point. I would lose, if, if he's going to include the thing about going out and playing football or soccer, whatever it was that they were doing, he he focused on it so much that I thought that was going to be the solution to achieving the goal. And I didn't know what the goal was anyway. If he's going to do that, I would give it much less space. I would just say, I even tried taking them all outdoors for a game of soccer, hoping that would bring them together. But as soon as we got back in the classroom, silence. Okay. So I want to know what the steps are to achieve the goal. Then he said, I said to them, I have nothing to teach you. I'm not sure why he used those words exactly, but that's fine. And he said, I want you to teach me. I keep, I was wondering, did that all he said or did he start actually asking them questions? Why did they start talking about spying in East Germany and so on? Did he prompt that or was it spontaneous? But here is where he needs to add real action to the story. He should include actual dialogue that he heard. He should say, finally, one courageous man raised his hand and quote exactly what he said, because dialogue in the story is going to be a great tool for making it more vivid and more emotionally involving. I didn't say this to Kerry, but he might even include a line or two of dialogue between him and his daughter in the car in his story. So let's hear what they said and let's hear what someone else said and then as he's hearing these things, what we don't get to see is how he actually started coaching them. He said, I realized I was a coach and not a consultant, but he doesn't illustrate for us what that means. Because at some point, he didn't just let him keep talking until the time was up and then he went back to America, I assume, or maybe he was living there. He had to do something as a coach that grew out of this conversation. That's what we want to hear. Because if the purpose of this story is for him to convince the audience that he is a good coach, he can't just say, I have a passion for coaching. We have to see how it's illustrated by this story. The first time he learned what really coaching meant and how it actually helped these people. So that the climax is he accomplished whatever the goal was that he has to define. And then the aftermath is, that ever since he's been able to use those very specific coaching tools in his work. But just generalizing to say, I now have a passion for doing this is not going to be enough to move the audience to action, I'm afraid. They will take action when they have the emotional experience of actually working with him and seeing the good results. So 
that would those would be my main suggestions to Otto. In other words, expand the story with a lot more detail and a lot more specific objective and how you accomplish that with these people. Because it's a very compelling situation. I was very intrigued. I just wanted to see where it all ended up. Okay, I think that's it for those comments. Unless Otto chimed in, he wants to, uh, uh, Paul to tell me. Paul I tells me that Otto, Otto is hiking in the Grand Canyon. So <laughs> he is not on the line with us. Okay, if he'd rather see one of the great wonders of the world than listen to me talk, then I don't know what to say about that. Okay, well, he can <laughs> listen to Pauline when he's back from his hiking, and uh, hopefully he'll enjoy All right, it. We do have some questions from some of our callers, though. David in Hawaii would like to know if you should let the stories be Kleenex-driven. Well, that's an emotion. I mean, if if you want to bring your audience to tears and that's appropriate to the story, sure. But if you make your goal, if that's the only emotion you're trying to evoke from your audience, I think you're going to limit your both your storytelling ability and the power of your stories quite a bit. Some stories are do an amazing job of making audiences laugh, and they do that and still get the audience to move, you know, to take action. They still move the audience to change because it can be a hilarious story about a mistake you made in the past that that taught you a good lesson, even though the outcome is sort of humorously tragic, if you will, or some setback. Other great speeches move people to anger and they get people stirred up and move to action to right a wrong or to correct an injustice or things like that. So it's not as if um, sadness, if that's it, or even tears of joy are the only kind of response you can get. I, I, I don't think that's the best starting point for a story. I think a starting point for a story is think of something that happened that illustrates what it, the principles you're trying to get across. And then in that situation, what is the predominant emotion of the situation in the story and focus on that. Fair enough. Okay, uh, let's see. Um, Janice from Walnut Creek says that she saw you speak with Fripp at NSA a couple of years ago, and uh, and you're great. Uh, she is trying to apply your story structure to her story, which is one of overcoming obesity to become a fitness instructor and wellness advocate. She's having difficulty trying to communicate the pain points. Is she on the line? Can I can I talk to Janice? Janice, if you are on the line, uh, dial star two or click the uh, the chat live button. She was live when she submitted the question. <laughs> she, she, maybe, she, 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 she passed away. <laughs> she was so scared about uh, well, that. She's, that she, the she's shy. <laughs> it looks like she is shy, or uh, or who knows? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, then I'll then I'll answer uh, sort of generically and see if this will help. My guess is, and this is what I was going to ask her, is she may be encountering difficulty because she is she went through a process 
of losing weight and overcoming whatever, I'm sorry, whatever obstacles stood in the way of doing that and then even going further to become, I think you said a fitness coach or, or uh, whatever the right. was for her. Okay, that's a long journey. That probably involves numerous stories. And if you're trying to tell all of that journey in one story, I think you're going to really get bogged down because you're going to be overwhelmed with possibilities. And I would imagine there were dozens of pain points, as you call them. What I would do is look at it differently. If you are trying to help people lose weight or get in shape, if that's the, if you want them to take certain action so that they can be healthier in that way, then whatever that is, think back to a single event in your past that taught you that particular lesson or where you were able to take that particular step or where you learned that particular element of what it takes. Because it takes a lot of different things to lose weight. It's, it's exercise, it's eating change, it's attitude, it's, it's learning to deal with other people's criticism and other people's you know, uh, unhelpful support and whatever else it might be. You got a story for each one of those. So my suggestion, not knowing exactly where your what your story is, if I could hear one of your stories, then I could be more directly helpful. But uh, I would say, first thing, ask yourself, am I trying to combine my whole life story into a story? And then Think, break it down into what are the key elements to being able to go from where I was to where I am now and pick a story for each of those key elements and then try following the six steps with that particular story. And I think it'll be a lot easier. That's all, all right, I'm just looking through some of the, uh, I'm looking through some of the other uh, submissions that we have here and we have quite a few. Um, this is from Ariel in Kansas. She asks, if you have a personal story to share, should you share it from your point of view, letting the audience know that it is you who you're talking about, or would it be better to speak about the character in third person as if it's someone else? If it's about you, well, okay, let me back up. I, it's a, it's a, I was gonna make it a simple answer, but I'm incapable of doing that, so okay. As a general rule, if you're talking about yourself, let us know it's about you. Because sharing sharing um, with your audience things from your past that especially these things that were painful or difficult that you had to go through or accomplish or the obstacles you faced, that's going to increase overall your audience's connection with you, making your overall speech more effective and you a better, more popular speaker because we have to feel an affinity for the person on the stage. We have to feel that connection. So don't hide the fact that it was about you, except with this, in this case. Sometimes a very effective way of telling a story is to say, imagine a, imagine a nine-year-old boy. He's uh, I'm not going to go back to <laughs> Terry's. We dwelt on the kite too much. But, uh, okay, so let's say, you know, imagine a 12-year-old girl. She is walking into the junior high for the first time. And then you go on from there. The girl does this. The girl does that. You can even name the girl as long as the name is not 
your first name that they see in the program for the conference where you're speaking or something like that. In other words, everybody assumes you're telling a story about someone else. You make it a powerful story about someone who faced a real crisis or experienced great pain or whatever your story is about. And, and then at the very end say, I should tell you that that girl I just told you about, that was me. And at that, and from that point in my life, I went on to this, this, and this. So it's kind of a surprise at the end. Now, sometimes the audience won't be surprised, especially because this is not an uncommon technique. And if you say a girl does this and a girl does that and so on. But um, if you give the character a different name than your own or use your middle name or a nickname you had as a child or whatever it is, it can sometimes be powerful because it's like they're into the story and then, wow, you mean that actually happened to you? And now they're, they're sort of surprised and that's an emotion as well that you want to elicit if you can. And now they're feeling even more connection to you than they were when they thought the story was about someone else. Don't overdo that, everyone. You can get away with that once, <laughs> once for, per conference or once per speech, maybe. Uh, just if, but if it really carries an impact to withhold that it's you so you can surprise them with it at the end, fine. But overall, the rule would be tell them if you're telling about yourself and if you're telling about somebody else, then make it clear it's about somebody else that you influenced or worked with or heard about or read about or whatever. All right, you got a couple more uh, submissions here. Would you like to go to another one? Yeah, um, I, I know that Michael Davis uh, is not available, so uh, maybe let's jump to Angela's because there, there are a couple new points I want to make about that story, and let's also ask if Angela wants to raise her hand and say, here I am. If not, we'll still listen to her story. Okay, Angela, if you are here, dial star six or push the uh, web chat uh, button on your interface. I'll go ahead and play. Uh, yeah, Angela is on the line with us. So I'll go, go ahead and play this for you. Hi, my name is Angela Decato, and my hometown is Gonzales, Louisiana. And I own Inner Evolutions, which is a coaching te team here in Louisiana and throughout the United States. And we serve and, um, people on their journey with success. And what I like to do in my stories is I like to start with a little snippet of a story and um, or the lesson, rather, and then end with a little bit of the lesson and create some type of a tension in the middle so that you want to lean in and listen more carefully to the end. So mine is about adding value to others. So uh, no matter how busy you are, I mean, you're limited on your resources, and I know that you can find and add value to others. Once I, I watched this principle, it lived out in an amazing way. I was visiting my grandma in Florida. She was 92 at the time, and she just turned 96, actually, and needed an ID to get her medications and had to get get it to her at the DMV. So I offered to take her and I was I wasn't looking forward to going to the DMV and as you all know, it's not the most value added place on the planet. But I wanted to add value to my grandma so I took her and when I arrived I got out of the car and walked around and I got grandma out of the car and got her up on the sidewalk and as I walked her along the sidewalk in front of these 
there was some large windows that lined the front of the DMV. And when I I was walking with her, I, I glanced inside, and sure enough, there was a long line just as I had expected. But something was so different about this one. Now, the way that this DMV is set up is that every person who comes through the front door, you have to meet with this guy who sits behind this big, tall desk. It's kind of like a like a ticket agent at, at an airport, and he'd listen to what you needed and, and directed you in the proper line where you needed to go. And I thought, oh, oh poor guy. He should be one of those, on one of those worst job ever reality shows or something. But um, anyway, we walked in, and I opened the door to the DMV, and when I walked inside, I was so amazed at what I had seen, I saw, and what I experienced. And it was such a refreshing, positive difference in the atmosphere. And what made the difference was the guy behind the desk. He had learned how to add value to customers. He just exuded happiness. He was smiling and joking, adding value to everyone who entered the DMV. I mean, here I am at the DMV in Florida, and people were happy. This guy created a space and a way to add value to others. And at the end, I asked the question of the people after I finished the story, what about you? So who are the people you meet on a daily basis, and how can you add value to others? Thank you. Okay. And, Brian, did you say Angela is there, or I don't recall? Angela's here with us. Yes, I'm here. Angela? Oh, good, Angela. Hi. Okay. Well, congratulations. Hi. First of all, congratulations on having the courage to say I'm here and be willing to subject yourself to this torture. So I appreciate that. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I, I really wanted to talk about this story. I, I like the setup. I like the situation. But I want to ask you some questions about it, if I can. First sure. of all, how, who do you see as the hero of this story? Um, the guy at the DMV. I don't know what you call it, Maitre D. If it wasn't him, who would it be? If it wasn't him? If it wasn't him, who would it be? Remember, when I say hero, I just mean who's the main character of the story? Who's the protagonist who is driving the story forward? Who's the one in the story that has the goal that has to be accomplished? In my story or in a story where I'm No, no, in your story. That's what I define as the hero, the protagonist, I, the main character. Who's okay, the I guess me, I suppose, yeah, because exactly. I really wanted to have some kind of joy in my life that day. Okay, you're the hero of the story. And your goal, fairly clearly, is you've got to help your grandma get an ID. That's your objective. That's the finish line. Get an ID for grandma by going to the DMV, correct? That's uh, the, yes. That's the, that's the visible goal. Original goal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, for the sake of story, we're going to say that's that's the goal because that's something visible. We can imagine what that looks like. It doesn't mean it's the lesson or the theme or the outcome or the aftermath, but that's the finish line you want to cross. As soon as you get her ID, you'll be done with this, what you think is going to be an arduous experience. Okay? So you right. said... 
at the end, you said, this is a guy who had found a way to create a space of, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact phrase you use, your lesson is about adding value to people's lives. And what did you say at the end? He added value in people's lives, but he did. And, and then you say, and so I ask my audience in the speech, how about you? And then what is the exact question you ask your audience? What can you do today to add value to others? Okay. So my question is this. After you had this experience, what did you do to add value to anyone's life? Oh, that's very good. <laughs> okay. But okay. The I learned the lesson and I, I applied it to my life, but would, did I, would I go into another story after this? No, I want to know in this story. Or can I just... Okay, okay. Did you do what was the what was the next occurrence in your life after seeing how this guy behaved that you added value to someone's life? Ah. Okay. I started well, looking I'm, at my situations differently. Just bear with me, okay, Angela? Okay. Um, so obviously this is the last thing you want to do. You love your grandma and she had to do this, and my guess is nobody else was around that was going to be able to take her to the DMV, so you had to, okay? So what, much. what what kind of attitude were you exuding as you drove to the DMV and slowly helped her walk or make her way to the door? What was oh, your it was bad. <laughs> what was your demeanor? Mm, somber, mm -hmm. sober. Okay. So your grandma, who probably isn't wild about having to get her IV and certainly doesn't like the DMV any more than you do, is being taken there by a somber, kind of resentful, kind of disgruntled person who's doing it out of love, but would really rather be anywhere else. Is that probably pretty accurate? That's very accurate. So how much value were you adding to your grandmother's life then? Um, hey, I was driving her to the DMV, yes, but that was right. about it. No, the, not the really. Minimum, the minimal amount. You were adding some value. You were taking her where she needed to go. Nobody else was doing it. I'm not, this is not criticism. This is just helping you get to yes. a better story. But my guess right. is you were not treating your grandmother like the man in the DMV treated those people. Is that correct? Mm, yes, that is very correct. Okay. So that's fine. We like this. We like this that you weren't doing this. Because then you see this guy, the, the guy, the, the traffic cop at the DMV, so to speak, telling people where to go or the greeter or whatever. Now, in your story, you said you couldn't believe it. He was creating this space and it was amazing at the DMV. But what did he do? How did he create that space? What was he doing? Telling jokes, juggling? just being nice, calling them by name. What exactly did he do when you stepped up in front of him to add value to your life? Or what did you overhear him specifically say or do with the people in front of you in line? Mm. See, that's where I'm struggling a little bit because I, I ran out of time. I think it was three minutes that we had. That's okay. Well, well now you have your chance because we've got more than three, three minutes. So, so go ahead. Just give me a couple well, so, of things you did that you saw that succeeded at uh, acknowledging these people are adding value. 
Yes, he smiled at people, he told jokes, he was kind, he looked right at our faces. I mean, when my grandma walked in, he addressed her personally, very kindly, and made her smile and laugh. Okay, so now we're getting to your story. Because to me, right now, you're saying this this person did this thing, but we have no idea what he did. It's just you're generalizing by saying he added value, and now you're telling me in the audience I should add value, but you haven't told me how. Okay? So now you're going to okay. turn this into, I think, a much stronger story and a better lesson. You're going to set this up. The, the setup is you are sitting across the table were you living with your grandmother or just uh was she somebody nearby or whatever it is doesn't matter you don't need to answer that now but whatever it is the opportunity for you is to find out your grandmother has to go get an id so the setup is wherever you were before you learned that so maybe you were you know dropping in on your grandmother who was 90 years old and you always tried to see her two or three times a week, but this time she was looking concerned. She hand you a letter and say, to get your IV, you will need an ID. If you don't have one, please go to the DMV. Okay, something. I'm just making this up for the sake of time and so on. But how did it really happen? Now that you found out about this, maybe it was a phone call or whatever, that you include in the story. That's your opportunity. And then, in a re that's your crisis. I started calling it an opportunity now, but that's the crisis. And now you have to figure out what am I going to do? And in figuring it out, now you can give us fairly vividly what your reaction is, what your feelings are about this. And that is, oh my God, this is of all the places. I, you know, I don't mind taking grandma to the grocery store, even though it takes a while. I don't mind driving, but this is the DMV. Nobody wants to go to the DMV. You just really lay it on kind of thick because we all are going to empathize with having to go to the DMV because we all feel the same way. Okay. And as you drove there, but then you also want to say, um, as we drove there, I was scowling at traffic. You know, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I, you know, maybe I realized that my grandmother was not really enjoying herself that much, but I was really caught up in, in my own uh, pain and suffering at having to do this errand, you know, thinking, why me? Or how do you want to word that? And then you walk in. Now, when you walk into the DMV, I would like you to explain it in detail, but don't jump in by saying, I couldn't believe what it was like positively. You want to describe it negatively. You want to walk in and say, it's, it was worse than I thought. The line right to the door had to have 30 people in it. And, uh, and around the room were a lot of other all unhappy people sitting in chairs or waiting at different cubicles to do whatever they had to do. And now we had to go through this slow moving line to be greeted by, and then you describe specifically what this man looked like. Was he sitting behind a podium sort of thing? Was he at a table? Was he just standing? What was he wearing? You want to create a vivid imagery to transport us into this world. And then as you start noticing that the closer you got, you started noticing that after people talked to him and went wherever he sent them, they were actually smiling. They were actually not looking as glum as as the people behind me, you know, with me in line were. 
And then finally, we got there and then you describe in great detail exactly how he addresses your grandmother, he looks her in the eye, he addresses her by name, he visits with her a minute, he says something funny or whatever he does. And then he, and I saw my, my grandmother's face light up and my face lit up. And I realized this is a man who knows how to add value. This is a man who knew how to add value to her life, something I had done not very little to do before that. And from that point on, you know, I, I, I was in a, such a much better mood. I started visiting with my grandmother and the time seemed to go by faster, whatever. We need an immediate aftermath to his effect on you. And then as we left with the ID, we both realized that really wasn't so bad and my grandmother was very relieved to have her ID. That's the end of the story. Then you can ask your, your you can say to your audience, you know, the le you know, what I learned that day is that when I, you know, I learned a lesson that day about such and such and apply it to yourself first and say how and whenever I get in that kind of mood, I remember that guy. You've got to put this on yourself and you've got to make yourself sort of a villain, if you will, in the story. You've got to go from being the kind of crotchety, grumpy woman to who you became. Then you sort of have the right to say to your audience, so how about you? Are there times in your life when you're maybe not adding all the value you could to people's lives and you have given a specific, do you look people in the eye? Do you address them by name? Do you give them your full attention or are you thinking about who else you'd rather be talking? You know, those kinds of things. And then you go into detail about what, what it means to add value. Those are really good tips. One question I, I do have because I was kind of struggling this, with this whenever I formed that, that uh, story is time. Should I, I don't know how much of a slave that we should be of the time. Some people say that a good story should be encapsulated in two minutes, and some people say three minutes max. I, I, I've just heard different things. Do you Here, have here's a, what I, a yeah. time criteria? There was a, a critic that most of you have probably heard of, Roger Ebert, once said, no great movie is ever too long and no bad movie is ever too short. And I feel that way about stories. <laughs> If you can keep your audience emotionally involved, then it takes whatever time it takes to do that. Now, the first question is, how much time have you got? Do you have three minutes on stage? Your story better be less than three minutes so you can make your point. Do you have, is this a keynote that's 20 minutes? That's different. So I would say write the story so it's emotional and do these things and then start editing, trimming, trimming, trimming. It doesn't take a lot of verbiage. I was, I was taking a lot of words because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But if I was working with you and we were honing this and sharpening this, this is a story that would be easy to tell in three minutes, maybe four, and include all those things I had to say that I was suggesting. One last thing, and this is apart from the story in a way, I'm not a fan of telling audiences the lesson they're going to learn before you hear the story, before they hear the story. I, don't, I, I know other speakers might disagree. We, we, can, we can chime in with uh, Brian because he's a speaker and he's talked to you know, hundreds of speakers. But my belief is start the story and let the lesson emerge. Don't say, I want to I wanna tell you how to add more value to people's lives. Let me tell you this story. 
Uh, it gives a, it, it steps on the lead, so to speak. It gives away the ending. I would say just jump into the story at the start of your speech and then let the lesson emerge when you ask them the question afterwards, when you convey the aftermath of your story. I okay, I think, I, I like I the element of gone, surprise. Yeah, I think I've gone over, uh, I, I've <laughs> over my time limit. So thanks, uh, Angela, for having the courage to step up and uh, answer my questions there. And uh, keep working on that story. It's a good story. I will. Yeah, thank thank you. you very much, Angela. I didn't want to interrupt you because you were going so great, Michael, and it looks like you're keeping everybody on the line, so you're holding interest, but we are over time, so it is time to wrap it up. Uh, but before I do let you go, I just want to make sure that people know how to get in touch with you. What is the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, it, the best thing to do is go to my website. It is storymastery.com. And I think if on the web, I think you guys are going to have it on your website too, a link or something like that. But if you go there, there's dozens of articles about storytelling. There's information on my speaking schedule, also about how you can work with me if you want individual coaching. But if you go to the website and you sign up for the newsletter, uh, there are buttons on almost every page where you can sign up. Then you can get a free list of the key story questions for speakers. These are questions you need to ask yourself about the story you're writing or composing to make sure it covers these elements and more and so on. So that's, that's a freebie if you just go and click yes, uh, send me my free list or sign me up. And then you get my regular newsletter with more articles and, and Q&As and things like that. So uh, please go there, and, you, and there's a lot of free articles that you'll enjoy as well. One more time, that's storymastery.com. Michael, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, like I said, you've really held people's attention. This is a great topic. Uh, I hope that people do get in touch with you to uh, help to improve the way that they tell stories and introduce um, introduce them into to their speeches. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, you've really shared some great advice that are it's going to get people thinking for sure. Well, good. So, thank again, you. thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure, and thanks again to the people who submitted their stories. I appreciate you having the courage to do that and letting us use you as guinea pigs. But uh, let's do this again. Let's not wait years again, Brian. Invite me back sooner so we can do this again because this is great fun. All right, we will definitely do that. And for the listeners, before I let you go, I have a real quick appeal to you just to review us on iTunes, please. If you listen to other podcasts, you're probably used to hearing requests for iTunes reviews. And these reviews are so important because it's really the fuel to bring on other great guests and build an audience. And if you value today's call or any previous interviews that you've listened to, I'd really appreciate it if you could just take a few minutes to go onto iTunes, search for Speaker Match, Click the review tab and let others know what you think. It would really mean a lot to us. I really appreciate your spending time with us today. Until next time, this is Brian Kaplowitz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Speaker Match radio series, Success Strategies for Speakers from the Pros. Speaker Match is the leading provider of tools and services for emerging professional speakers. You can find more information about Speaker Match at www.speakermatch.com. Our toll-free number, if you prefer to reach us by phone, 
is 1-866-372-8768. International callers can reach us at area code 512-372-8768. Thank you again for listening, and we wish you the best in your speaking career.